Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global Venture Stories Web3 Edition. I'm here today joined by a very special returning guest, Avichal Garg. Avichal is the founder of Electric Capital, uh, most recently you know, raised a billion dollar fund investing in Web3, uh, fortunately to be a, a, a very small LP. Uh, Avichal, welcome to the podcast. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Avichal, obviously we are talking now at a crazy time in, in the markets. Uh, markets have dipped significantly. Uh, you've been through a few downturns, both as a Web2 and, and Web3 entrepreneur and investor. I'm curious how this downturn has surprised you or how you make sense of, of, of where we are right now. And the big questions you're asking yourself. Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, so for context, I lived through the 2008 crash as a founder. Um, and then obviously, you know, crypto has its own little mini four-year cycles. And so um, have been through a few of those personally. And then Electric uh, was started in 2018, which is sort of the, the, the bottom or the, the beginnings of the bottom of the last cycle about four years ago. So yeah, so we've been through a couple of these. And in terms of how to navigate it, I think it's it's pretty consistent. You know, it's as venture investors or as founders, I think we have this actually pretty great luxury um, at the early stage where you're just so small relative to your total addressable market and what the future potential of your thing is that kind of the best thing to do is just put your head down and work and just create value because you know you're not huge yet. You don't own significant market share. I think it's a lot harder at the public stages. You know, if you're if you're like Facebook right now, or you're Google right now, or you're pre-IPO company and you just raised a round before the public markets crashed, that's really tough. So, you know, I, I don't envy the people in those positions. Um, so in some sense, we we sort of get to cheat a little bit by by virtue of what part of the market that we're in, uh, which is you know, we focus on the early stage. Um, and then I think the other thing, you know, we, we just wrote a founder letter, which I should share on Twitter probably, but I, we just wrote a founder letter to uh, our founders a few weeks ago. And it kind of had a lot of the standard stuff that I think has been shared publicly now by a bunch of firms around like, why is this happening? And, you know, how do interest rates impact growth equity multiples? And, and you know, what do you need to do? And you need to extend your runway. So there's like a bunch of that kind of advice. But the thing that I haven't really seen a lot of people talk about is more how do you as a founder personally navigate this because it's just so stressful. And to use a Ben Horowitz turn of phrase, you know, managing your own psychology is really the critical skill in these sorts of environments. And I think a lot of it for founders and for CEOs and, and anybody who's sort of in a leadership position, I think, is you can't really do the right thing for your team or for the company or your customers or the people around you, even, even personally, like your family, if you're not managing your own psychology really well. And there's, there's a bunch to, to sort of do there. And I think for a lot of people who haven't had, you know, like a 2008 kind of experience, this, this sort of period is really scary. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's not really a surprise, but I think the real test here for crypto people is that this is the first time that we've existed in a crypto bear market that coincides with a macroeconomic bear market. And you know, whenever we raise our funds, we, that's what we always tell LPs. There's, there's two really critical risks to crypto and Web3. One is just government regulation and kind of where does that net out? And that's actually trending positively and it might be worth talking about that. But um, the other is it's crypto you know, has really only existed in a macro bear market for the last decade plus. And so we don't really know what happens if we go into a protracted recessionary kind of period. We just don't know how the markets will respond. And so it's a big open question. And then, you know, like I was saying earlier, though, I think, you know, it's, it's, 
that's a two-year thing, you know, maybe it's maybe a three-year thing. Um, and we have the good fortune of investing at the early stage. And so if you're, if you're a series A founder, you put your head down and create value for your customers and get to the other side. And odds are, if you pick the big market and you have created real value, then the thing that you're working on, whether it's a company or a protocol is going to be far more valuable in three or four years than it is today. So, you know, the best advice is just put your head down and work. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I, I feel like some of the argument for certainly Bitcoin, at least, was that it would be a, a hedge against inflation mm-hmm. or that, uh, you know, it was an alternative asset that was maybe, you know, uncorrelated with with some of the some of the other, you know, um, tech stocks or other things that they, they've invested in. But uh, we, we quite, haven't quite seen that yet. So it'll be interesting to see how institutions respond in terms of how they view um, sort of this asset class now. Yeah, it's it's a great observation. Um, you know, the way we have always talked about it is that it's prospectively these things. You know, it's like prospectively a store value uh, at the Bitcoin level. It's prospectively an uncorrelated asset class, and it's kind of TBD to see how it works in a in a bear market. And I think it'll be really interesting to see you know if and when it decouples over the next 12, 24 months from from the rest of the markets. Because right now, obviously, it's been really Bitcoin has been really correlated with um, with uh, public equities uh, like growth tech stocks. But I, I would note one thing. I think you know part of what's happening here too, which is which is um, kind of what makes crypto interesting, but also challenging, is like you have multiple types of market participants. Like I, I always describe crypto as as a platypus. You know, it has a duck bill and it has fur and it lays eggs and it has duck. You know, it has like webbed feet. And so you look at that thing. Like imagine the first person that discovered a platypus in Australia and brought it back to Europe. Uh, obviously, people in Australia knew about it already, but like the first you know European that that sort of took it back to Europe it probably looked made up, you know, it was probably like, what the hell is this thing? Like, did you, you know, did you invent this animal? And crypto is kind of like that. It has properties of growth tech, but it also has properties of stores of value, like gold. It has properties of, uh, you know, commodities. And so it's it kind of like all of the above. And I think it, it will behave differently in different market conditions, depending on who the market participants are. And so, you know, I, I look at it, for example, from like a store value lens, I think it's interesting to say, okay, well, relative to the US dollar right now, you're kind of flat, you know, versus where you were uh, at the peak of the, last cycle in 2017. Uh, but if you look at it in Argentinian pesos, last time I looked, you're still up 10x, right? So if you, if you look at it as like a true outsized inflation hedge, um, then, then you know, in these other currencies, actually, you're way, way up. And it's sort of, you know, it, it's a, it touches on, I think, this idea that a lot of people in, in the US in particular, look at things like crypto, and they say there's no use case for it. And, and it's because we, we live in this thing, you know, in this environment where the US dollar denominates everything. Like the, the story I, I tell around this is um, there's this great writer, I'm sure you've read him, David Foster Wallace, um, and he gave this uh, commencement speech at Kenyon College in the early 2000s. And uh, it's all about sort of challenging assumptions and thinking for yourself and so on. Um, but one of the, he tells this little parable, this little story in it about um, uh, an old fish you know, swimming by two young fish. Um, and so the young fish are swimming downstream and the old fish is swimming upstream. And the old fish uh, sort of nods at the two young fish and and says, hey, boys, how's the water today? And uh, the two young fish nod back, and then they keep swimming uh, downstream. And then after a little while, one young fish turns to the other young fish and says, hey, what's water? Uh, right? And that's like, to me, it's a, it's a great little story. Um, you know, it's like sort of the, you know, the ability to see water is, is sort of, and it comes from, from it's, a, it's a form of experience and wisdom. Uh, but I think for a lot of Americans, like the U.S. dollar is basically water. Like the, the, you know, the U.S. dollar is a currency in, in terms of like the unit of account of the world. We just don't see it, but the rest of the world sees it. Um, and, and so for the rest of the world, you know, they don't really have functioning financial systems. They don't really have banks they can trust. They don't really have currencies that retain their value. Um, and so a lot of these tools make a lot of sense for them. And so 
while I think what you're saying is true and a valid criticism relative to the US dollar, I think relative to Argentinian pesos or, you know, uh, you know, if you're in Turkey or Lebanon or Indonesia or Nigeria, actually it's, it's you know, it's done exactly what you'd expect, which is it's actually a much better place to park your assets than, than your local fiat. Uh, no, that, that, that's, that's really insightful. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the store value use case. I mean, we're, we're right now in an environment, obviously, while, while Web3 is down, where there are sort of, you know, Web3 skeptics are parading. <laughs> yeah. um, there's the sort of, you know, the Zach Weinberg crew, there's, there's a few others, and, and, and they have some, some good points, to be sure. And my, I, I saw on Twitter that maybe you're going to join one of those conversations. I'm curious, besides this, the store value use case, what other use cases are you, are you most excited about you, that you think perhaps they're, they're, they're missing or, or don't quite get the magnitude uh, of? Yeah, well, I, I think the use case is money and money is, is a fundamental technology. I mean, it's that, you know, part of the reason economies work at scale is because we have money. We have units of account and mediums of exchange and stores of value. And, and what we have here, which, you know, I think is, is a remarkable thing and really, uh, especially I think people coming from tech and I'm, I myself didn't really appreciate or understand is the social breakthrough. So I think there's a lot of technical breakthroughs here, right? There's the idea of distributed consensus. There's the idea of, um, you know, smart contracts and zero knowledge proofs. And there's like real technology and computer science here. But to me, just as interesting as the social breakthrough, which is you now have a hundred to 200 million people who have taken some, some money, some fiat dollars, you know, us, us dollars or euros or yen or whatever. And, and, exchanged it for ones and zeros, whether those ones and zeros are Bitcoin or Ethereum or NFTs, uh, and, and have made it an exchange. And even if a lot of that is speculation, which it almost certainly is, um, a significant portion of the market, a very substantial portion of those people are basically saying, you know what, I would rather have these ones and zeros instead of some US dollars, or instead of some euros, or instead of some, uh, you know, Naira. And that is a fascinating behavior, right? Like, it, it's, it's no matter what you think of it, I think, when, you, when you're on, you know, I think a good rule of thumb for me is when you're on the internet, if you see 50 million people do a thing, like no matter how stupid it looks to you, once 50 million people do it, you kind of need to set your own value system aside for a second and say, wait a second, what's going on here? Uh, because maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there is some fundamental need that's being met here. And I should try to understand this. And that really is the history of, of many of the most surprising things on the internet, right? That's social networking, that's share economy. It's just like, think about in the nineties, if you said to people, Hey, I'm going to put my, my picture and my phone number and my home address into a database where anybody in the world can find me and message me and you know, strangers can find me. And then I'll get into a car driven by some stranger that I've never met and go to a stranger's house and spend the night there. You just, they'd be like, that's wild. Like that's literally, you're not supposed to talk to strangers. You're not supposed to go to a stranger's house. You're not supposed to talk to strangers. These are literally the things if you're a kid in the '90s, you're not supposed to do, and those are literally the business, you know, the biggest businesses on the internet. And so, I think at this point where you see a bunch of people doing something that looks really stupid to you, but there's 50 million of them, I think, especially as a, as a founder or, or an early stage investor, I think you have to sit up for a second and say, "Wait a second, what's going on here? Like, am I wrong? Are they wrong? Is are they all idiots?" Like, and historically, it's been the case that if 100 million people do something on the internet, probably two billion people are going to do it in some form. Uh, and that's kind of what's happening here, right? That's, you know, you, you now have Coinbase has 75 million accounts. And, you know, if you start considering FTX and Binance and, and many of these other platforms, Magic Eden, uh, you know, OpenSea, these NFT platforms that have millions of users, all of a sudden you look at that and you're like, wow, this is well north of 100 million people are doing these things. Like, what the hell's going on? 
And, and to me, it's, you know, once that has happened, what we've really done is we've bootstrapped a, a means of value exchange that's truly digital, um, which is different than the existing system, right? The existing systems that we have in the United States, like a Venmo, it's really a representation of value, right? Like the, the, the database, like you have the money that the database says that you have. And as soon as the database is overwritten, it is what it is. And in this case, the, the subtle but really important difference is that you're the only one who can write into the database, right? You have to sign off with, with your private key and say, yes, I'm authorizing the movement of this money. And then, and then the database can get updated. And so it's that, you know, who, whoever owns, quote unquote, owns the ones and zeros owns the money. It's not a representation of money. Like the ones and zeros are the valuable bit. And so uh, no pun intended. And like that, that is a pretty phenomenal breakthrough because I think as soon as hundred million people say, Hey, I think these ones and zeros are valuable. You can actually bootstrap an entire economy on top of that. And so I, you know, to your original question, sorry, it was a long way of bringing it back to the original question. It's like the use case is money and money is like a hundred trillion dollar ecosystem, right? It's just everything that involves money movement, whether it's even you look at stable coins, right? There's a hundred billion dollars plus of stable coins moving around now and they move 24 seven. I can send you a US dollar today on Ethereum, um, you know, on a weekend, you know, on Saturday morning at 7 a.m. when the banks are closed, I can send that to you or, you know, midnight, I can send it to you. Um, there's, you know, trillions of dollars of transactions now happening with that, uh, with those US dollar stable coins. You know, it's the idea of, you know, uh, being able to use these things as base currency so I can convert some ETH into an NFT because I like the art or I like, I want to support the artist and I can pay that person. And now a creator actually has a new business model to reach their fans and, and transact with them without a YouTube or a Facebook or a Spotify in the middle. And it's very early days, but you're starting to see that happen. There are literally creators now that make more money from NFTs than they do from any other Web2 source. Um, Andreessen actually put out some great data not long ago. Uh, and, it, and it was something like you know, NFT creators last year made two and a half or $3 billion in 2021, which is, which is remarkable when you consider that that's more money than Facebook paid out to creators, right? Or that Spotify only paid out $7 billion. Um, and so the, the order, you know, the scale that you're talking about, even with very low adoption and market penetration is still on the order of billions of dollars. It's because it's, it's a direct channel. It's a peer-to-peer payment system. Um, where you start looking at marketplaces, you start looking at, you know, a lot of fintech, you know, it's really fundamentally anything that involves money movement is going to move to this kind of infrastructure. And some of it will be hyper-decentralized, you know, like DeFi systems. Some of it will be very centralized and sitting on the backbone of this infrastructure. But yeah, I don't know. I, anytime somebody says there's no use case, I'm like, I don't understand. Like money is the world's biggest use case. It's like literally the world's largest market is money. Uh, and anything that involves money is going to move to this infrastructure. And, you know, that doesn't look like the internet. I mean, I think that's, what's, that's why it's interesting, right? It's, it's not like a new social application. Like maybe one day social applications are built on this kind of stuff. And I think that very well may happen for a whole host of reasons that we could talk about. But to me, it's just like yeah, the money use case is enough. That's, you know, that's a hundred trillion dollar market on its own. Yeah, and I, I think people might, the skeptics might respond by asking, why is it inevitable that's going to move to this infrastructure when the old infrastructure has all these regulations that protect yeah. uh, you know, consumers as well as the backing of, of, of the U.S. government? How, how is it more secure? And, and that's what people want on, with, their, with you know, transactions is, is, is security. Um, yeah. And so how, how might you, like, what makes it so inevitable? Yeah, so it's, it's an excellent question, right? So even if something is like technically uh, possible or technically better, why, why might it? you know, work uh, ultimately. I think um, there's sort of two or three observations here. So one is, I think if you look at how technology adoption happens, you know, I think it, it often doesn't replace the, the systems that work. So I don't think it's likely that it, like all of a sudden replaces 
the U.S. you know Treasury markets, or it goes in and replaces U.S. real estate, and all this real estate stuff moves on chain. It tends to start on the fringe, um, and that's what makes it hard to spot. And start it starts with underserved users, and underserved doesn't necessarily mean poor, right? Like actually, it turns out um, when it comes to money movement, extremely wealthy people are underserved because banks are closed more hours of the week than they're open. Right? They close at 5 p.m. and they're not open, you know, most of the weekend, and so. You know, if you need to move money around uh, or if you need to move large dollar amounts around, it's actually quite painful. Like literally, if I need to get money on a Friday afternoon to somebody in Japan, the best option might be to go to the bank, like pull out a bunch of cash and like get on a plane and, you know, take it to them, right? If I need to take $5,000 to them and I'll get there tomorrow. <laughs> and, and whereas a bank would take till Tuesday. And so I think a lot of these systems are like very broken. And, and the, the question is like, which types of users are underserved? And I think young people are underserved. I think people on the fringes are underserved. I think extremely wealthy people are underserved. And you look at those populations of people, whether it's um, college kids who have no credit, the extremely wealthy um, adult film stars, uh, you know, drug dealers, and uh, the, the national security agencies. And it turns out these are all of the same people who are on the fringes of the internet in the very early days, right? It's because these people have very extreme needs. Um, there's a lot of friction in existing systems or they have no ties, like young people have no ties to the existing system. And so they're very open to trying things in a new way because uh, there's no baggage there. Um, and, and so to me, you're seeing all of those same people appear here and adopt these things um, and have a preference for them. And so, you know, I think it's kind of starting in the same places as you, as you would expect. It's, it's actually, frankly, it's starting exactly where the internet started. And to, you know, I mean, the numbers are starting to be real. That's, that's the other thing, right? It's just like, it's, it's not a hypothetical statement. It's not a forward-looking statement. Like, I think the forward-looking statement is how big can it really get? Um, but, you know, the here and now, when you start talking about things like stable coins or NFT you know, transaction volume um, or, you know, smart contract volume, I think, you know, you're starting to see real numbers here to the tune of billions of dollars, um, which I think is, you know, I personally think is, is sufficiently large that you probably shouldn't ignore it. The other thing I'll highlight here is I think that's that's sort of a like skeuomorphic view of things, right? Which is there's a set of use cases that you can understand that look kind of like the old stuff. What gets me really excited as a venture investor is the second generation of these things often is the really surprising stuff. So like, you know, through the 90s or early 2000s, we could we could get our heads around things like buying plane tickets online without an intermediary or buying stocks online without an intermediary or buying books online without an intermediary or news being online because those were use cases we really sort of had analogs for, and we made them digital. And then the second wave was the really interesting stuff. It was all the stuff you couldn't do, you know, like the idea of a social network at global scale, global messaging, you know, um, a car coming to you um, because you now have uh, a GPS on your phone, uh, groceries coming to your house. Like this kind of stuff was like the second wave that really worked, right? And I think we're going to get the second wave with crypto, which is actually going to be the really interesting stuff. Um, and, and that's, in my opinion, going to come as an offshoot of the fact that now computers and software can own money and can custody money. Because as soon as ones and zeros become valuable, what that means is I can send some ones and zeros, which are money, into a piece of code, into, into a smart contract, which has a wallet. And that smart contract now has some ones and zeros sitting in it. And the private key is you know, under the control of that smart contract. And that smart contract can write code around that money. And that opens up a really interesting novel set of use cases that we don't really have analogs for. That I think will be really, really disruptive. Now, this is somewhat forward-facing, but you know, some of this is here today. But you know, imagine like what is a smart contract, right? Because and, and the fact that a smart contract could have billions of dollars in it. You look at some of these DeFi protocols um, that have protocol control value. Um, you know, you look at Frax or you look at Tokamak, or you look at Aave, you know, these things have billions of dollars sitting in a smart contract. You're like, what is that thing? Right? What is a smart contract? Because it doesn't have a social security number, so it's not a person. 
and it, it doesn't have a TIN. So it doesn't really exist in Delaware. It's just a piece of code that lives in the cloud. It doesn't even live in a particular, it's not like it lives in a data center, right? So it's not like it has a jurisdiction. It just sort of lives in the cloud. And like, what is that thing, right? And, and that's the kind of stuff that I look at. And I'm like, huh, that's pretty crazy and wild. Like, you know, what does that mean, for example, when that intersects with AI? You know, like if, if an AI, which also is a non-human, non-business entity that lives in the cloud somewhere, has access to billions of dollars, um, which literally it could do today, like, what does that mean? Um, and I think that second wave of stuff is going to be really, really disruptive. Um, those, that's more forward-facing. But I think like the use cases here today, uh, you know, pretty straightforward and transparent and obvious to me are, are all the money movement use cases. And you're already starting to see those at scale. Um, and I think those will continue to scale. And I think if you just look at who the users are, it's just, to me, is actually pretty obvious that it's all the same people that were early adopters of the internet are here and spending all their time on it. I mean, we see it on the ground in, in really interesting ways too, right? You just look at the founders. If you go to a crypto conference and you walk around, it's just a bunch of 20, 20 to 25 year olds. It's really crazy. It's so different than going to any other industry conference right now. Like you go to an AI conference or you go to like Facebook's developer conference. And it's just a, it's just like a, literally people that are 10 to 15 years older. Right. And, and so on the ground, you're just seeing all of the young talent. You're seeing some of the best people. You know, if I, if I look at sort of like who are the, some of the smartest people that I know, you know, crypto is, crypto and web three is extremely polarizing, but you have some, you know, some of the smartest and best people are, are on the pro side. Now, there's obviously some very smart people that are on the anti side as well, but it's not like it's all dumb people. And then there's like a bunch of smart people who are anti this stuff. You know, it's like people who have a track record of having, having called these markets very consistently over the last 20 years, you know, it's like 50-50, right? So I don't know. I look at that and I'm like, man, it's just, why would you bet against that? It's just, that doesn't make any sense to me that it's all the same people <laughs> that made the internet happen. It's all the young people. It's like some of the smartest people. So either there's like a, you know, collective delusion and mass hysteria on a scale that has never, ever, ever happened in the history of the world, or you're wrong. <laughs> and like, what's, which of those two is more likely that like you, you as an individual are wrong or that like everybody else, you know, these, these tens of millions of people are wrong. I don't know. I, I think the more humble approach is to say, maybe I'm wrong. I want to talk about the next wave. Um, I, Cause I, you know, it's interesting. One of the critiques of, you know, some of the things that, that we're talking about here is, hey, you know, um, when DeFi got big or when NFTs got big or even sort of like Axie Infinity got big yeah. and, and sort of had their ups and falls, like one, one you know, very simplistic, crude and, and, you know, incorrect critique, but there's some truth to it is that these are big casinos and, mm. and that, you know, the use case is speculation <laughs> and, yeah. and people love to speculate, of course, and that we've invented new, new casinos, but that the, the claims that we have on why these are so special are, are not yet proven. And, and there was a moment, you know, in, in the Web2 era where like, uh, what do they call it? They called social mobile local. We're like a intersection of, of technologies uh, and, and, you know, uh, had enough sufficient adoption to create like a wave of innovation. And we had, as you mentioned, Airbnb and Uber and Snap on, on, on top of this. Like when you think about the next wave of, of Web3, what sort of... Um, you know, technologies or, or things need to get adoption to have a similar sort of explosion. And, and, and where do you see that, you know, happening? If, if the, the last wave was DeFi NFTs, uh, you yeah. know, data to earn, like what, what's, what's next? I, I think it's actually a very valid criticism and sort of an interesting thread to pull on to say, well, is it mostly just a giant casino? Is it actually just speculation? Perspective I take is I think there's certainly a lot of speculation going on. But I think that's actually a property of every market in the early days. Um, you know, you can go back and read about the Industrial Revolution. You can go read about railroads. You can go read about fiber optics. You can read about the internet. Um, it's almost like a necessary cost 
to these markets that you get overinvestment. And it's really, in my opinion, the personification of that, that, uh, that saying, like people overestimate what's possible in two years and underestimate what's possible in 10 years. And sort of like the market manifestation of that is that you get speculative mania, but really over 10 year timers. I mean, like 10 years ago, it was 2012, like Facebook had barely IPO'd, you know, uh, like it was just a totally different world. So 10 years is a really long time. Um, and so, you know, I think short-term speculative um, cycles, I think some people, it's kind of like what we're talking about with, you know, who, who's here and who are the users that are here. And I think there's, when you see, let's say drug dealers and adult film stars and college kids and the NSA hanging out, like some people look at that and like, oh, there's a bunch of shady characters here. I don't want to be there. Like, I want to go hang out with the serious people. I want to go hang out with the academics and the PhDs and so on and so on. And obviously there's a lot of those people here in crypto as well. I mean, some of the most brilliant academics and PhDs in cryptography and uh, distributed systems are, are all operating in crypto, which is obviously a very positive sign. But some people get turned off by some of the other characters um, or they get turned off by the speculation. And I look at that and I say, no, no, no. The history of, of technology adoption is, is those people and is those market cycles and is those market behaviors. And so I think that's, that's you know, I, I, without setting a value judgment to it, you know, I think, and there are real consequences to that. Like, I think people can really, you know, lose a lot of money, which is why we always, always caution people to, you know, if, if you're going to, if you're going to put any money into crypto, which is obviously not investment advice, you know, go do your own research. But if you are going to put money into it, you, you have to do a lot of research and you have to make sure that you only put in so much as you can lose. And if you start putting in, you know, like we're seeing now all these highly leveraged positions, like it's, it's going to blow up in your face. But I, I just look at it as sort of a necessary property of markets. Like, I don't think you can get these really step function changes in society, the truly disruptive stuff, if you don't have a group of people who irrationally believe that this thing is going to work. And then there's a degree of overinvestment that happens in the short term, and then it bears fruit in, you know, a seven to 10 year time horizon. I just think that's the history of like every market. And so then you play that forward and say, okay, well, what are the, what are the forward looking use cases? I actually think we haven't even fully realized the, the potential of the existing ones. You know, I think... Well, let's take something like stable coins. Um, you know, I think the, the Treasury and Fed have sort of come around to the idea that embracing stable coins is, and, and Congress actually, like um, Senators Gillibrand and Loomis have, have just put forth a bill that tries to regulate these things in a pretty reasonable way. And, you know, you look at that in, in 12 or 18 months ago, uh, that all, almost would have been unthinkable, right? Like the conversation at, at, you know, from Janet Yellen and, you know, the SEC and Treasury and so on was these things are a systemic threat. Like we need to get rid of them. Uh, we need to we need to crush them, and and what they've realized is no 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 this is actually the best possible way to get U.S. dollars into the world. We could we could get an extra trillion dollars uh, through mobile devices all over the world, and that's that's a strategic advantage. Um, and so you know I think the the sort of existing use cases are actually not even anywhere close to tapped out. Or you look at um, you know DeFi, I think it's mostly been you know on the order of a two million people, four million people, like a relatively small number of people have actually participated in these systems. And you're just starting to see use cases like a goldfinch, where you can use these global capital markets to borrow money and give them to small businesses um, that otherwise would not have access to capital. And you know those those kinds of use cases, I think, are just now starting to be possible as the tooling has gotten good enough. Um, or you know, on the NFT side, I think you know the last wave here has really been about things like profile picks um, and starting to break into things like communities and identity and um, you know token gated discords and like you know that sort of um, the idea that, that communities have identity and, and you can express that online somehow um, or, you know, social signaling online. But, you know, we're just starting to get into the realization that just, just kind of like, you know, Bitcoin was sort of like a, you know, between 2009 and 2000, let's say 14-ish. 
you know, people sort of said, oh, there's Bitcoin. And then along came Ethereum. And there were obviously some predecessors to it as well that were playing around with this idea. But along came Ethereum and said, oh, actually, the really interesting thing is that you can write code around this and make it useful in other ways. It's not just that you own the ones and zeros. I think we're now starting to get to that phase of, of NFTs, which I think is going to be really the Cam Cambrian explosion of what happens with NFTs that get interesting, which is it's not just that you now have some piece of property as a digital property, right? Which represents a ones and zeros, and you can put a put an image against it. But it's like, what does it mean when you can write code around that thing, um, and and what could that represent, and what could it be? Um, and so, like you know, you look at something like um, Zora, which is you know Jacob, uh, the founder there, is like really playing with some very interesting ideas. Or there's a, a project called Verse, um, which is an, an, a, you know sort of a, a new type of NFT, and the the instinct there is almost like, well, if this thing is actually smart contract code and you can write code into it, couldn't you just interact with the NFT directly? Couldn't you have the NFT itself be a counterparty to you? Meaning that the NFT could sell itself or the NFT could sell a piece of itself to you, or you could go buy a piece of the NFT from itself, which is, which is like, there's no, there's no physical world analog of that, right? You can't, you can't walk up to a car and the car sells itself to you, right? That's just like, that, that's like a nonsensical statement. Um, but you can do that with, with digital NFTs. Um, right, or the NFTs entitle you to some future rights, or like Royal, I think, is playing with you know music royalties floating uh, across NFTs, and so as stuff happens in the real world, like money flows to your wallet. You know these kinds of things. I think once you start being able to program the NFTs, is really where it gets interesting. And so even without getting, I think, too off in the distance of what happens when an AI can control a billion dollars on chain in a non-jurisdictional way, I just look at the stuff that. that the developers are playing with today. And I think over the next three to five years, you're going to start to see this stuff really hit in a way that if you rewound to 2018, when CryptoKitties happened, um, you know, play that forward four years and you're like, oh, I, I see why it's sort of V1 of NFTs. You could have had a glimpse into the future there. I think we're now starting to see V2 of NFTs between games and um, you know, programmable NFTs and, and the utility around that. And three years from now, all of a sudden, it'll, it'll be millions and millions of people doing it. So yeah, it, maybe to bring it back to your original question, like I, I actually don't think you even have to go that far off into the future. I think like some of the things that people are playing with today haven't really even materialized in terms of uh, like 50 million people plus doing them, which I think will happen over the next five years and in a lot of these use cases. Totally. No, we're, we're lucky to be uh, small uh, supporters of, of both Zora and, and Royal. And, and I think those are fantastic examples. You, you've alluded to um, some already just now with, with DeFi and NFTs, but talk about some other buckets that are in your kind of investment purview or, or some other hypotheses you're looking to, uh, to put some capital behind in terms of what, what you think is going to, going to be big? Yeah, two, two or three others that we think are pretty interesting. I mean, um, one is just the idea that FinTech should move to this kind of rail. And, and you know, even if you figure there's tens of millions of people that now own some Bitcoin and ETH and no bank realizes that you know, that's an asset and that that's usable, um, you know, what, is, what are the implications of that? Or, you know, if you think about moving money, like remittances internationally, right, this has been a thing people have talked about for a long time based, based on stablecoin infrastructure. Um, so, you know, I think sort of fintech applications of this stuff, super interesting. If you think of this just as a new way to build software, you know, it's, it's sort of a serverless architecture where you have to pay for the compute cost. Then, of course, you're going to need developer tooling around that. We, we uh, publish a, an annual developer report at Electric and look at just the open source developers in the space. And there are now tens of thousands of open source developers uh, writing code in and around Web3 and crypto, which is yet another reason to, you know, I think not, not be short this space. And you know, once, once you start getting into the 20,000 plus people writing code, like almost, even if you, even if you think they're all idiots, you know, which obviously they're not, 
even by some random walk, probably, you know, a couple of dozen of them are going to stumble into a lot of value. But, you know, all those people need different tools. Uh, you know, the old way of writing code is not how they need to write code. And so you get these really interesting uh, new tools like ImmuneFi, which is a bug bounty program. And, you know, you can put down money into a contract like an escrow and say, hey, if you, if you hack my protocol, instead of taking all the money and being a criminal, tell me what the hack is and I'll give you a million dollars. And now you're not a criminal, you're a white hat hacker. And you can, you can receive that money truly anonymously. So nobody even knows you you know, who you are. So it's not like everybody, it's not, not like winning the lottery and now everybody knows that you won. Um, you can receive the money in ETH anonymously, um, which is pretty amazing, you know, on chain. Uh, all you have to do is reveal reveal what the bug is. Or um, there's a there's a company in our portfolio called uh, Sertora, which uses formal verification to, to determine whether or not there are bugs in a smart contract. So you take your smart contract, you convert it into a bunch of math statements, and then you can prove that the mathematical statements have certain uh, properties. And so you can actually find a bunch of bugs. And so they found bugs in Maker and Compound and, you know, all of the major DeFi protocols use them. But if you believe ultimately that this sort of distributed ledger infrastructure plus smart contract infrastructure is actually the way that money should move, you know, at the banks, for example, like JP Morgan has basically built, you know, JP chain. I don't know if that's what they call it, but that's what I'll call it. And, you know, that is the architecture, right? Because it turns out a lot of these financial systems were built in the sixties and seventies. Um, and they're built, you know, on, on Fortran and COBOL kinds of systems. And clearly, computer sciences and programming languages have evolved in the last 50 years, and it's time to upgrade this infrastructure. And so there's an entire suite of developer tooling that I think gets, gets um, built around this. You know, one of the emerging areas that I think is really interesting is decentralized infrastructure. And so if you have this idea of, well, I can, I can treat these ones and zeros like money, and therefore I can move money around really efficiently, um, you know, you, you can have very, very, very small payments of money and that money doesn't have to go to a human, it can go to a computer. Um, and so, you know, the folks at Protocol Labs, um, you know, which built um, IPFS, uh, Interplanetary File System and uh, Filecoin actually have a thing that's working. Like you can actually go put stuff into things like Filecoin or Arweave and it gets distributed to many, many servers all over the world and, um, and you can pay for that. Um, and so now you have actually a, a decentralized file storage system that is not Amazon, is not Google, and it's not Microsoft. And that works today. Like you can write code against that. It's pretty amazing that that thing works. And so I think the coming wave of, of decentralized infrastructure plus developer tools unlocks a whole new suite of, of creativity. Um, and, uh, and I think that that's TBD. I think that's, it's still quite early. So I don't, you know, it's now sort of technically possible to do a lot of things. Uh, but I, I, I think over the next three to five years, we'll see that emerge. So I, I, I very much put that sort of stuff into the forward-looking bucket. Um, but it's, it's clear to me, it, it feels a lot like Ethereum 2015 or something. Like it's all of a sudden technically possible to do something and, uh, and, and the developers are starting to show up to play with it. And somebody's going to stumble into a handful of use cases that really blow people away. And that might take a couple of years, but I think once that happens, you'll see the flywheel start, start spinning on decentralized infrastructure. And, you know, people are working on the other parts of the stack there too, right? What does it mean to have decentralized compute? What does it mean to have decentralized DNS? All these components are getting worked on such that when you play this out five years, I think there's there's a real set of developers who will say, you know what, I don't want to be on Amazon and Stripe and Google uh, because I don't want them to shut me off arbitrarily. I'll just, I'll go into these systems. And, and then over time, kind of the classic flywheel starts to happen, right? There are these sort of fringe use cases. They move on to this infrastructure that is somewhat inferior internally initially, but it's better for them. And by those people moving in, they drive down the cost. Um, and once they drive down the cost, um, you know, there's uh, more people who can come in and use it and you get kind of that flywheel kicked off. And I think if that flywheel does get kicked off, 
um, an increasing number of developers will choose to move to this sort of a system, all else being equal, versus you know being on Amazon. Um, and yeah, I think that takes seven to ten years. But we're investing in, in kind of the early stages of that as well. So yeah, you know, I think like back to this idea of like what is the use case? Well, the use case is money. And if you can start paying humans or you can start paying computers to do stuff, and you can do that in real time, you can do that 24-7, you can do that with very, very small dollar amounts, you can do that across jurisdictions or, or in a non-jurisdictional context, you just start opening up all sorts of use cases, um, which again, that's forward-looking and there are a set of use cases today that are that exist today, but I think that's that's like a pretty big breakthrough. I think it's a very underappreciated breakthrough um, that, that you can now do these kinds of things. Totally. You, you brought up a great analogy earlier when you were talking about uh, Web 2 and you said, hey, you know, if, if in the 90s you would have said people were, you know, sleeping on strangers' couches or, you know, getting in strangers' cars or going on dates with strangers or, you know, putting your information in, in a database, they would have yeah. called you crazy. And these were sort of net new, non-skeuomorphic use cases. Um, f- finish the analogy with with Web 3 in terms of uh, whether it's whether it exists currently or, or it, it doesn't exist, but it's forward looking. What are the things that if you grew up in the 2000s or 2010s, people would have said you're, you're crazy, but are now net new, non-skeuomorphic use cases? Yeah, uh, uh, there's a ton. I actually, for what it's worth, I love your dating example. That's one that I haven't used often, but I'm totally going to steal because I think that's exactly right. Like if you, if you uh-huh. were dating, dating in the 90s, it would have been super creepy to, you know, you, you sort of wouldn't have said, oh, we met online. And now like most marriages start online, right? There's been this dramatic cultural shift. And it just goes back to the same pattern. Like at, at a certain point in the late 90s, early 2000s, you hit this point where tens of millions of people were doing it, not a billion people. But it was clear that that was a behavior that some people were willing to do. And, and no matter how stupid you thought it was, odds were you just play that line forward and it's going to play out that way. Video games are the same way, right? Like a lot of people think video games are dumb. And yet here we are. And, you know, video games you know, eat up as much time as, as Hollywood. And there are hundreds of millions of people that play video games for many, many hours. And so, you know, some of the things that jump out at me today, I think, I think actually is the idea that you would have and denominate money in a non-sovereign sense. Like I'd rather have Bitcoin or Ethereum than, you know, my local currency. That seems crazy to people who are over, uh, generally like over 50, it seems crazy. You can just look at the demographics of who wants Bitcoin and who doesn't. And, uh, you know, if you look at people who are under 30 um, and what's their preference for something like Bitcoin over U.S. treasuries or um, or the stock market. And, you know, there's like 25% of people that would rather actually have Bitcoin or Ethereum. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Or, you know, I think I look at um, profile pics of NFTs and, and some people look at them and say, this is stupid. And I say, well, you know, it's actually social signaling and humans are, are we do a lot of social signaling and there's a lot of utilities as well. But if you look at just the social signaling use case, are you better off buying a $50,000 Rolex or Patek for $100,000 and putting it on your wrist and walking around? You know, like, who are you going to show that to? Like, where, who do you accrue social capital from when you do that? Like maybe 10,000 people will see your Patek for a hundred grand. So you're paying like effectively $10 per impression for people to see your Patek. Um, But if you buy a hundred thousand dollar NFT and you put it up on your Twitter profile, a million people might see it. Right. And so that's only 10 cents per impression um, for people to know. Cause you know, if if the sort of the social capital that you're accruing is I have a hundred thousand dollars and I'm in this community, now it's 10 cents per impression, which is literally 100 X better. Uh, so I look at something like NFTs and I'm like, wow, that seems really crazy. But at least when I think through it, I'm like, well, actually, maybe that's not that crazy. Like if the human need here is social signaling, here's a hundred X better way to socially signal that you have a hundred thousand dollars to throw around. Right. And so, uh, you know, I think some of these use cases today, people are just going to look back and be like, yeah, that actually makes sense. And, and that's, this is why, for example, I think if you look at the NFT use case, it's not a surprise that the people who are realizing this are the people who have brands, right? It's, it's the influencers, it's the celebrities, it's the musicians, 
uh, you know, it's, it's LVMH, like the people who understand brand are the first to have gotten their heads around, um, around NFTs and everybody who's, you know, sort of an engineer and looks at this from like a tech perspective is like, this is stupid. Why are people doing this? And, and yet, you know, you have Snoop Dogg and Eminem and LVMH and, you know, like the people who understand brand, um, are the first to sort of embrace this because they get it. It's just digital brand. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I, I look at some of these behaviors and it's just so obvious to me. And I think the two big ones right now that stand out are the idea of non-sovereign money. The fact that I can, um, you know, own assets that are, that are seizure resistant and outside the, the reach of the government directly. Um, and, 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 um, you know, that's kind of the exposure that I want. That's, that's where I want to park my assets, which really, I mean, peeling back one more layer, I think on that stuff, you know, what's really happening on that side of the market, which I think is different than the NFT, NFT side is, um, you know, we have a crisis of faith in the institutions uh, that, that make society work, you know, whether that's the press or whether that's, uh, you know, the banks or the public schools, or now I think what's started happening in the U.S. is the judiciary, uh, you, know, so, you know, trust and faith in the Supreme Court is, is um, you know, very, very, very low right now. And it's not a, that's not a statement on the, the quality of their rulings or whatever. It's just, you know, once you get to a place in society where, you know, 50, 60, 70 percent of people don't trust an institution, uh, that is what creates space for a non-sovereign form of money. Right? That's what creates a space for, well, maybe this system is not working for me and I need to be a part of an, an alternative system. And that's kind of what's happening on this, on this um, non-sovereign money side. Um, and then, you know, on the NFT side, I think it's just, it's, it's so obvious to me that all the young people and all the people who understand brands are, are, would rather socially signal in a digital way because they, they, they spend their time entirely online. Um, so those are use cases that are here today that I think probably will 100x from here. Totally. In, in terms of the different um, sort of buckets of, of Web3, one thing we haven't talked a ton about yet is, is other elements of consumer, uh, you know, social, you know, and there's sort of this, you know, when you think about the companies like Facebook, um, you know, Twitter, Airbnb, Uber, there was this, you know, moment where it was like, we're going to have a decentralized everything. Um, and everything is, is going to be, it's sort of like money crypto versus tech crypto. We talked a lot about the m money crypto. T talk about what types of, you know, the web two dominant use cases are going to transport over to a, a web three world or, or which are actually going to stay in some sort of hybrid or how do you think about consumer? Yeah, I think the, I think NFTs are the wedge on the consumer side. Um, and, and I think they'll unlock a bunch of new use cases. So I think um, NFTs, video games um, are, are sort of how that's gonna happen. And then NFTs are sort of, in my opinion, the back door for social, um, because what you're really doing is opting into a community. And what you're saying is here's my tribal affiliation and this is the community I'm in. And then by owning the NFT, you get access to private discord, or you get access to private events um, or merchandise. And so you get, to, you get to sort of flex your tribal affiliation in, in various ways. Uh, and, and so I think that's actually the gateway to, uh, to, to social here. And then the implicit graph that you get around that, right? So if you own one kind of NFT and you also own another, there's sort of starting to be an emergent graph there based more on the communities that you identify with and where you're spending your time and your money um, more so than um, prior real world um, communities, uh, which, is, which is what social really was, I think. And um, you know, social was much more sort of offline communities getting digitized by and large other than Twitter. And so, you know, I think uh, social is sort of an emergent property of, of sort of the NFT behavior, in my opinion, um, and, and that will happen with video games and NFTs. Um, and then I think some of the things that we think of as social today, you know, like the social network or um, messaging um, or, um, you know, like uh, job credentialing, like I, I tend to think those things will happen, but in, in a much later form, 
because the incumbents are so good at what they do in Web2 on that stuff that it's really hard to compete against them directly. And so you kind of have to flank them. You know, like I think it's not going to, I think it's unlikely that somebody just creates a social network that looks like a Web2 social network um, and, uh, and it wins. It has to do something uniquely different. And so, for example, like maybe what that is, is that there is, uh, there's truly no limitation of what you can say, right? And, and you can just say whatever on chain and it's an open protocol. Um, you know, like in many ways, I think Twitter sort of, you know, the original incarnation of Twitter was a protocol to, to sort of move these messages around. Um, is there something like that I could see switching to Web3, but then the interface and kind of, you know, how you interact with it likely has to look and feel really different. So for example, concretely, what that might mean is that there isn't a singular feed, right? The notion of a feed is sort of outdated, right? Because that implies that there's some centralized entity that's choosing the ranking algorithm. Like maybe what it actually means is that you get to opt into one of a hundred feeds um, and, and, you know, the people who make the feeds are a part of that social network. Um, and so there's somebody who's out there who's sort of an editor or a curator that is sort of creating feeds on top of all the data that you could be seeing and you get to opt into which feed you want. But that starts to look and feel and probably behave differently than social networks do today. Um, and so I think likely the path to, to um, those things emerging is going to be a little bit different. And I wouldn't be surprised if the wedge to making those things happen really happens through NFTs. Um, and then, you know, I think when you start looking at other Web2 stuff, you know, SaaS, you know, that, that sort of more enterprising stuff, I think that's probably the last set of stuff to move over. You know, I think uh, probably first is, is going to be consumer use cases around social and marketplaces where NFTs and, and peer-to-peer infrastructure really do make a potential 10x improvement from Web2. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that, that, that's insightful. We, we've been talking about the, the big use case as, as, as money and you know, sort of the, the trillion dollar opportunity that, that enables. Let's talk about with, you know, within um, Web3, um, just talk about how we see the chessboard in terms of who's going to win. <laughs> and if, I, if I'm to put my critic hat for a second, just talk, you know, for a few seconds, like Bitcoin, you know, can that really be anything more than store value? No one's building on top of it. You know, what, like, you know, what, what, besides digital gold, what else can it really become? Uh, <laughs> Ethereum, is that, you know, sort of the worst of all of both worlds and that it's not as sound as Bitcoin, yet it's not optimized for, you know, for uh, usability in the same way that something like Solana is. And then, you know, something like Solana, is that thing even decentralized, like you're sufficiently decentralized, like, or, or can any of those other, you know, near uh, Avalanche, you know, uh, any of the others, can they catch up to, to all the activity that's happening on Ethereum? How do you see the, the, the chessboard and what is the criteria that you're using to determine like who, who can win, uh, who, who might the big winners be? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question and it sort of evolves relatively quickly because the space moves so quickly. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's going to be hard for something to compete against Bitcoin as, as sort of digital gold. I tend to think of something like Ethereum as a global settlement platform, a non-jurisdictional settlement platform. And so I think the, the sort of bull case or the opportunity for something like Ethereum if you're India or Turkey or Brazil or Indonesia or Bangladesh or Nigeria, like these countries that have hundreds of millions of people um, and, and you know, large economies, you're looking at what just happened with the US and Russia and, and you're kind of worried, right? Because you exist in a US dollar denominated system, you know, like your, your debt is US dollar denominated for many businesses, but the US has now suggested they might shut you off if you like it. Uh, and, and you're sort of seeing some pressure applied there, I think not smartly where the US might go to a country and say, hey, if you do business with Russia, we might have to tell you, we might have to shut your banks off too. And so now what you have is sort of a, uh, 
uh, weaponization of, uh, of the dollar in a, in a way that's, you know, sort of leading a bunch of these countries to say, well, what do these countries really want? I think what they want is a U.S. dollar denominated system that the U.S. can't shut off. That's effectively what Ethereum is becoming, right? It's, it, the, the assets are U.S. dollar denominated. It's programmable as a settlement system. And so you have lending platforms, you have derivatives, you have options, you have, you know, you can get synthetic securities. Like you could actually have an entire financial economy. It's just not controlled by the U.S. It's effectively U.S. dollar denominated, but not controlled by the U.S. And I think that's the bull case for something like Ethereum. Um, which is why I think you see so many, I mean, if you look at the, the developers, there are obviously a lot of American developers, but you know, when, when we do the analysis, we see a lot of Russian developers, we see a lot of Ukrainians, we see a lot of Indians, um, you see a lot of people in Southeast Asia and a bunch of those countries over-index, Turkey, um, you know, these, these countries where, where they sort of understand the value of the dollar and having an, uh, um, a system that can't easily be shut off by the US, that you know, all of these countries, developers are sort of participating very actively. And then I think there's like a big spectrum of decentralization, um, which is like not everything needs to be 100% decentralized. Um, it's really a question of like, what is your attack vector that you're trying to protect against? And if you're trying to protect against like a sovereign grade attack, you really need to be fully decentralized. But I think there might be space for, you know, like maybe, maybe something like Solana is never uh, digital money, but maybe it's sort of like an AWS for finance, right? It's, it's sort of like, sufficiently decentralized that nobody owns it. And it's like a, it's like, it's like a public good. Um, but in effect, what it's done is created standardized APIs for people to be able to read and write data and, and have composability for all the basic building blocks that you need in a, in a financial system. And so maybe a bunch of companies come in and choose to build there. Um, and, and it sort of, you know, becomes like an AWS for, for Wall Street uh, or for the global markets. And if that's all, you know, quote unquote, if that's all it ever is, I mean, you know, Amazon's worth a trillion and a half dollars and most of that, cash flow is really AWS. So it's probably a trillion of it is AWS. And so could something like Solana be, you know, the AWS for finance? That doesn't seem crazy to me. Um, so kind of the operating mental model we have is there's probably going to be lots of layer ones. They're probably going to interrupt with each other. There will be some degree of specialization. Probably the number of use cases that we have for these platforms is, is much greater than we can imagine today, um, especially as like really smart developers come in and start to play with these things. And, uh, and so it's not going to be winner take all. It's probably going to be some sort of power law. Um, and, and from an investment perspective, the return profile is so asymmetric that if you can be early to some of these things, and there is legitimate technology there and good teams, and they're long-term minded, um, that you know, the, the asymmetric return profile for, for giving some developers the space to go explore and see what that search space looks like the asymmetric return profile from a venture perspective is totally worth it, even if many of these things go to zero, which again, is not financial advice. You know, it's, it's a tough that's a tough way for the average person to invest, but as a venture fund, that that is our mandate, right? You find a bunch of stuff, and and your winners are so big that it outweighs any of your losers that go to zero. Yeah, that um, that makes that makes a lot of sense and is well put. A few years ago, um, you came on the podcast and we talked about uh, privacy coins. I'm hmm. curious what we've learned over the last few years as it relates to privacy coins. What what, what the state of it is, and what what is the opportunity? Yeah. Uh, it's actually very timely, I mean, given given just what happened with the Supreme Court um, around abortion. You know, our our long term belief we're, we're one of the world's largest and most frequent investors in privacy preserving technologies. So we're seed investors in a number of of these things uh, over the years, um, and it's because we we believe in privacy as a fundamental human right. Um, and it's one of these things that I think, like so many things, uh, people don't really appreciate until there's some threat to it. 
Uh, and then the use cases become much more obvious. And so, for example, if you're in an authoritarian regime and you're a journalist, you really appreciate the value of privacy. And, you know, I think now, uh, you know, in the U.S., uh, you know, to pick an example, maybe on, on both sides of, of the political spectrum, um, you know, if you worry about, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, have, still being able to purchase a gun or ammunition or whatever, right, because of your Second Amendment rights, maybe you really value privacy, maybe you really value private payments, uh, maybe you really value your credit card company not being able to shut you off for buying a gun, um, or your employer finding out that, that, uh, that you like guns. And, you know, this is that, no commentary on like background checks or registration or the process. It's just, you know, it's a sensitive topic. And so maybe you don't want people to know that. Or maybe there are certain medical procedures that you would like, uh, and uh, and you know it causes you personal risk to have even your credit card company or your bank know that stuff. Uh, and we now have privacy tools that allow you to have privacy, you know, not only from third parties but also from the people that are processing the transactions. And so only you and the person receiving the money, you know, know that that payment happened. And actually, you know, you could even in theory have it have it routed such that they don't know who you are. Now, of course, in the case where you're like buying something physically from them and you have to do a background check or you're getting a medical procedure, obviously they know who you are. But these technologies are pretty powerful in terms of giving people the privacy that they increasingly think are going to start looking at and saying, I really would like to have this kind of privacy. Uh, as people start to, you know, kind of back to this idea at the highest level that we're talking about, about as the institutions and society that really made society work have become um aged and, you know, they were really designed kind of post-World War II and they don't make sense in today's society anymore. Um, as people start to realize that, they start to look for these kinds of things. And I think privacy is going to be one of those things over the next five years that a lot of people sort of sit up and say, oh, this is actually pretty important to me uh, and, I need, and I need that. And there's some other signals that I think that's happening, literally signal the messaging client, um, you know, continues to grow. It's, you know, they're dealing, I don't know the actual numbers. I think they're now probably about hundred million uh, monthly users, which is a non-trivial amount, right? It goes back to the sort of intuition that once a hundred million people on the internet do something, like there's some real need that's being met there and you should really pay attention to that. Um, and that, that's, you know, those are just the consumer use cases. I think, you know, businesses can't do anything on these systems without true privacy. And so I think in some form, you're going to get zero knowledge proofs that, that give people really, really great privacy on, on all these systems. Um, but I think that consumer use cases are, are going to be just as important. And I think a lot of people will realize that very quickly. Um, so we, we continue to invest in, in a number of privacy solutions and a bunch of teams that are pursuing this um, and pushing the state of the art um, in, in kind of giving people privacy. Yeah. In, in gearing towards closing here, I, I want to ask a, a bare um, question and a bold question. The bare question is, do you, you know, we just had Terra, Celsius, uh, um, 3AC, like, are we worried about more sort of systemic risk? With it within the space, you know, like is Tether going to collapse someday? Like, what could that do for, for, yeah. for the space? That's sort of the bare question. Then the bull question is, what do you think is going to be the next um, precipitant? Uh, what's going to precipitate the next the next bull run? Or, or you know, if, if NBA Top Shot got all these people you know into the crypto space without even realizing hmm. that they're into crypto, what what's the next big thing that will get you know the next wave of uh, wave of consumers? Yeah. So on the first, yeah, I think there's likely still contagion and second order effects of, of uh, what's happening. I think, you know, there are still people who are trying to figure out how solvent they are. Um, that will take some time to unwind. And if we have any, any more volatility in the markets, you know, if you see another 20% drop or 30% drop in crypto prices, it could cause another set of sort of forced liquidations. So, yeah, I don't think we're, we're quite through the woods um, um, on the volatility yet. And I think because we're not through the woods on the volatility, we're likely not through some of these um, these liquidation events. I will note, though, I think by and large, when you're talking about 
DeFi systems, you know, things that are like Maker or Frax, which are over collateralized on-chain systems, they've continued to do exactly what they said. Like they still continue to work exactly as they had before. Like they haven't really been impacted. By and large, the, the failure has been sort of the three the three arrows capital or Celsius or BlockFi, uh, which really are the old system, right? Those are centralized finance institutions that that had poor underwriting and and gave assets to people under you know under collateralized or uncollateralized. Um, and took on too much leverage and, and that is unwinding. And so it's, it's actually, I think, a tremendous, if you look at it on substance, not kind of what the, the news media will tell you right now, but on substance, it's actually a great vindication for DeFi because the on-chain systems that are transparent and auditable have actually performed fantastically. And the systems that have really failed here have been the old world centralized opaque systems where there's some human underwriting some other human and somebody gets taken advantage of, like they, they uh, you know, fraudulent or they claim something or they, you know, the, the underwriting risk was not done properly and they didn't think about the tail risk. And like, it, you know, it's a, it's a replay of 2008 in many ways. And, and so, you know, it's to me is not a surprise that it's unwinding this way, uh, given that that was the kind of behavior that was happening. But it's actually a tremendous vindication of, of many of the DeFi systems, not all of them, because I think there are some um, some really bad decisions that were made in some of these protocols. But I've, I've been impressed at how well the DeFi systems have actually held up. And then, you know, looking forward, really hard to say, you know, it's, it's so hard to say what, which of these things will work and on what time horizon and how. And so, you know, I think um, we have our convictions around, you know, we continue to think the, the digital non-sovereign money use case is a real thing, programmable space, which is the third space, which is not the Chinese system and not the U.S. system, but is a global U.S. dollar denominated system is a huge opportunity. Um, you know, some of the developer tooling, we talked about a huge opportunity to build software in new ways. You know, NFTs as a consumer wedge, um, you know, huge opportunities. So uh, DAOs, which we haven't really spent a lot of time talking about yet, continue to be really interesting and we're early investors in a bunch of companies there. But just the idea that you can organize humans in the cloud, you know, in a non-jurisdictional setting and let those humans have a wallet and, and pool assets and capital and, and pursue objectives um, through shared values, uh, you know, fascinating. So I don't know which of those comes back next or, or um, you know, it's, it's too hard to call, but I think the thing that will allow one of those use cases to come back is, is it offers real value, right? It's ultimately, there's something fundamental there that is highly utilitarian um, that will create the flywheel. I don't know which of those it'll be. Uh, so we'll see, you know, for the next couple of years. But like I said, you know, uh, over a 10 year, you know, I think if we play this for 10 years, I think it's all of them. So it's really a sequencing question, right? It's like what happens in the next two to three years, which is very, very hard to predict as we said before. Awesome. I think it's a great place for wrap. Founders who are listening, uh, you'd be lucky to have Electric and Avichal on, on your cap table. They're, they're founders themselves, and the team is mostly engineers. They have a lot of dry powder during this during this uh, crypto winter and uh, and are, are actively investing. Um, Avichal, thanks so much for coming to the podcast. It's been a great episode. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at Village Global dot VC.